Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Well, amen. Do you believe that, church? We serve a, a risen and living king, not a, not a dead savior. He's alive, and that's why we've gathered. If, if Christ was dead, we should just go home, right? Hang out, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But uh, we know we have a king who lives and reigns forever and raises up to life everlasting all who trust in him. And it was that confidence that, that Esther has uh, that we are seeing as we work through the book of Esther. And today, we're going to be in the seventh chapter of the book of Esther. So if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, if you would join me in turning to Esther chapter 7. If you are unfamiliar with where to find Esther, if you divide your, your copy of God's Word in half, you'll probably be in the Psalms and just start working your way backward until you get to the book of Esther. Uh, you won't be there. It won't take you very long to find it. Uh, we've been seeing in the book of Esther the truth that our Lord, not, not any small g God, but our Lord, Yahweh, can take the most desperate and impossible situations and turn them around for His glory. Do you believe that? you believe that Yahweh can take the most impossible and desperate situations and turn them around for His glory? I, I pray that you do, because if you're here this morning and you say, I'm a believer in Christ, then at least one time in your life, he's taken an impossible and desperate situation, and he's turned it around for his glory, because he took you from death to life. He took you from a a child of wrath to being a child of God through faith in Jesus. And if God has done that in your life, then you know he can turn around an impossible situation. And, And we're seeing in Esther, he's turning around an impossible situation for the, the people of God, for the Jewish people. They're, they're facing a decree of destruction secured by a man named Haman, who happens to be the king's right-hand man. And Esther is the, the queen of this pagan king named Ahasuerus, and she has agreed to risk her life by going to the king and asking for him to somehow deliver her People. But to do this, she's going to have to identify as a Jewish woman, something she's concealed from the king for the last five years. So she calls for a three-day fast. She depends upon the Lord where she defer- discerns a two-feast strategy. And at the end of the first feast, in chapter 5, the king looks like he's ready for her to make her request. But God said a two-feast strategy, and so she just, she just waits. And the reason she waits She doesn't know why she's waiting, but overnight, as we saw in chapter 6, God changes everything. He changes how the king is going to perceive Haman, how the king is going to perceive Esther's adoptive father, Mordecai. He intervenes in the king's sleepless night to change everything that's going on in the mind of the king. And so chapter 6 proves to us that the Lord is in control, right? The Lord is always working. We can sleep because God it never does. Apart from the Lord intervening in time and space in history, nothing good happens. The psalmist captures this truth in one verse, Psalm 127.1, 1, 
where he says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You can toil, you can work, you can run, you can do everything, but unless God is in it, nothing good is going to happen. And yet, we see through the feast that Esther provides in chapter 5 and chapter 7, that the Lord also involves His people in His work. Indeed, the Lord often works through our work. So get this, that means that depending on God does not give us permission to be lazy or nonchalant or selfish or self-absorbed when it comes to our pursuit of God's mission in the world. Just because it's all up to God doesn't mean you get to do nothing. Does that, does that make sense? Because I don't know if you've encountered this. There's some people well, it's all up to the Lord, so I'm just going to check out and I'm not going to do anything for the next 50 years of my life. That's, that's not how God works. God is sovereign, He's in control, but He chooses to exercise His sovereign control through the work of His people. If He's saved you, He's saved you to be involved in His plan of getting Messiah King Jesus to the world. He involves Esther in doing that, and He wants to involve me in doing that, and He wants to involve every single one of you who names the name of Jesus in being involved in the Lord's work. You believe that? Every single one of us. And so I want to share with you from Esther chapter 7 this morning about Esther's courage and Haman's downfall as we think about what it looks like to be involved in the Lord's work. We'll start with verses 1 through 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were Drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. The first thing I want to share with you from this text in verses 1 through 3 is that we must courageously follow God's plan and identify with His people. We must courageously follow God's plan and identify with His people. As chapter 7 begins, the king and Haman return the second day for the second feast of Esther. In verse 2, as the, the wine is flowing, the king asks for the third time, what is your wish and what is your request? Also, for the third time, he offers Queen Esther up to half his kingdom. Three times. What do you want? Up to half my kingdom. It's yours. So for the third time, he has committed this to Esther in a public setting, which means the king is very committed to doing what Esther asks for. And yet, what does Esther do? Before she asks for anything, she begins with, If I have found favor in your sight. What she's going to have to ask the king to do is to reverse a decree that he authorized. It's going to, cause, it's going to require the, the king to confront his pride. He's going to lose some face. And so she begins with, if I have found favor in your sight. Now I'm going to chase a little rabbit this morning. I don't like to chase rabbits, but here's a little rabbit chase in the sermon. I apologize, but, but I want to make this side point before I make the main point. And it is this, we can learn from Esther in the way that she approaches the king. Did you know that the world is dead set against Jesus and his people? Uh, Newsflash. 
If you didn't know that, check out Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? Why are they trying to conquer King Jesus? Why are they trying to conquer his people? If you haven't figured it out yet, the world is not too keen on Jesus or Jesus' people. And they will come up with all sorts of convoluted ways to try and undermine and attack and sabotage you. Welcome to the world in which we live. All right? But just because that's true doesn't mean we have to adopt a posture of being jerks. Right? Are y'all, y'all here today? Hey, because Esther goes into the king, a king who signed a decree to kill her, and, and the first thing she says is not, hey, you're a jerk. Don't be a jerk. She says, if it pleases the king, if I've found favor in your sight. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. They hate Jesus. They're going to hate you. But that doesn't give us permission to go into conversations with the world with a posture of hate. We don't hate them back. Jesus came to save, not to condemn. He came to love. So the, to the extent that we can, as the people of God, without compromising the truth of the gospel, we also ought to seek favor of those around us. At North Roanoke, I love it when we can be positively involved in our community, even a community that is lost and dying and headed for hell, because I want to have favor in the world to the extent that we can have favor in the world so that we can lift up Jesus and share the gospel when we get an opportunity. So when the world acts like knuckleheads, we don't have to have our first response of saying the world is acting like knuckleheads. We pray that they would come to saving faith in Christ. We endeavor to have favor in the world to the extent that we can find an opportunity to share the gospel. Okay, we caught the rabbit. Back to our main point. Verses 1 through 3 are showing us we've got to courageously follow God's plan and identify with His people. In verse 3, despite the high likelihood of failure and death, Esther matches the king's twofold invitation to make a wish and a request with two things. For her wish, she wants her own life to be spared. And for her request, she wants the lives of others to be spared. In this moment, Esther identifies herself and her people as those who are facing a looming decree of death. And what strikes me is Esther's courage. She says, the people you are going to kill, I'm one of those people. This woman in chapter 4 had refused to be a part of the Lord's rescue plan, and now she is fearless in the face of death. Let me ask you, what changed in Esther's life between chapter 4 and chapter 7? Suddenly she found courage. It's not that she found a courage within herself, however. It's not that she looked deep within or she dug deep it's instead that she looked to the lord who delivers his people on the third day this is the second time that esther puts her life on the line first when she came to the king uninvited and the king had to hold out his scepter in order to accept her and now by identifying with people who are marked for certain death i appreciate what bible scholar dowden says about courage he writes this god never calls us to be courageous as an end of itself. As though being courageous was about us. He doesn't call us to be courageous as an end of itself. Courage is always for believing or doing something for His kingdom. You get that? 
man, I just don't feel very courageous. Well, well, God doesn't want you to be courageous for the sake of being courageous and fierce in yourself. He wants you to take courage in Him for His purposes and His kingdom. Did you know God gives courage when we want to be involved with His kingdom purposes? A question that every Christian should ask themselves is this. What is God calling me to do or to release that requires me to be courageous for the glory of King Jesus? I want to say that again. What is God calling me to do or to release that requires me to be courageous for the glory of King Jesus? Yes, salvation is holy and entirely the work of the Lord. But did you know that no one got saved or grew in Jesus Christ because a Christian was lazy or complacent or cowardly? In the New Testament, Jesus tells us on several occasions to have courage, mostly in, Mark, in Matthew's gospel. And do you know why he tells us to have courage? He says to have courage because your sins are forgiven. To have courage because he gives us his power. To have courage because he gives us his presence. And then we see in Acts chapter 23 that he says to Paul that we can have courage when we are acting consistent with the purposes of God. How can you have godly courage? How can you have courage to pursue the kingdom of God? It flows from your union with God. Christ. You don't have courage into your in yourself. You have courage that comes from Christ, the Lord, living Lord God Almighty. The mission of God advances where God's people have the courage to die if necessary for the glory of Christ and the good of those he came to save. Now, most of you, God is not asking you to die today for your faith. He's asking you to die for self, but most of us and probably all of us, he will not today ask to die for our faith in Christ. But did you know that he might? He might call you to go share the gospel with a people group that's never heard the gospel before. He might ask you to, to lay down your life for the good of Christ and those he came to save. But you know, far too few people have even lesser courage in life. We ought to be willing to face death for the one who conquered death for us. But, but sometimes we won't lay down a single preference to worship Christ as King. And the reality is, church, where there is saving faith in Jesus, the Lord gives courage to get Jesus to the world no matter what it costs us. Jim Elliott, a missionary who was martyred as he tried to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians in the 1950s, wrote this a few years before he was killed. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, if you give your life which you can't keep yourself, so that others might have the gospel, you've really lost nothing if your life is safe in the hands of the everlasting God. And so if God Almighty has saved you, why not lay down your preferences and your pride and even your favorite programs so that Christ would be exalted in His church? It was this sort of perspective 
that allowed Esther to act courageously. And it's that sort of perspective that we've got to have to make some of the gospel-motivated and biblically-informed decisions that North Roanoke Baptist Church needs to make as we move into the next chapter for the glory of Christ our King. What would you not lay down? What would you not surrender? What would you not give up so that Christ would be magnified and draw all men to himself? Let's keep reading. Verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. As we work in the Lord's harvest, as we work for the Lord, the second thing we see is we must speak up on what really matters because lives are at stake. And the other thing we see is the opposite of this truth. We also need to know when to hold our tongue because it's not really that important. Now, I don't know which of those two truths you need to write down in your notes today, but they're both true in Esther's life. We need to speak up on what really matters because lives are at stake. Full stop. Second truth. We need to be quiet when it doesn't really matter. And unfortunately, we got a lot of Christians today who reverse these. Not many people are too excited about sharing the gospel, but man, one little change that I don't like and I'll give you an earful. We need to speak up on what really matters because lives are at stake. Esther was willing to put up with an awful lot and remain silent. She tells the king she would not have bothered him if she and her people were merely sold into slavery. But they weren't just sold into slavery. They were sold to be killed. And the Messiah was supposed to come through the people of God. And so this was a mission-critical problem, and she spoke up. What if in our churches, believers were so focused on spreading the gospel and getting Jesus to the nations, they didn't have any time to grumble or complain and gossip? What, what is interesting is that Haman had asked the king for a decree to destroy a certain people back in chapter 3, verse 9. But in Hebrew, the word destroy is a homophone for the word that means to enslave. Does everybody know what a homophone is? It's like two, two, and two. Does everybody struggle with that word? T-W-O means two, but T-O means I'm going to Kroger. And T-O-O means also... Does anybody else have that issue? Well, in Hebrew, the word that means to enslave sounds like the word for destroy. And so what's going on here potentially is the king may have thought that Haman had asked for a decree to enslave a people, but actually he had asked for a decree to destroy a people. So when Esther speaks to the king, she does so with respect, recognizing that her request is going to cost the king some inconvenience and some financial loss. 10,000 talents of silver are at stake. And she wants to know that she has the best interests of the king at heart as she makes this request. She's an example of speaking up on things that truly matter and yet doing so in a respectful way. And I submit to you, church, in a world 
that has devolved to screaming and shouting and name-calling, we can learn from Esther. Slavery is certainly an injustice worth speaking up about, and yet Esther says, look, if I had just been enslaved, if my people had just been enslaved, I would have tolerated even that injustice so long as Jesus was going to get to the world. So let me ask you a question. If, if Esther was willing to remain silent, even if she was going to be enslaved, what inconvenience is too great for you to withstand for the sake of getting Jesus to the nation? I want to ask that again. What inconvenience is too great for you to withstand for the sake of getting Jesus to the nations? Haman's plan, of course, called for wiping out the Jews altogether, destroying the Messianic line, and so she speaks boldly and clearly, quoting from the decree itself. I can only imagine the the lump that's beginning to form in Haman's throat as he connects the dots between the words that Esther is speaking and the decree that he secured in chapter 3. Did you know the church today could use a few more Esthers? The church should be filled with people who are willing, like Esther, to embrace inconvenience for the sake of the gospel and to then speak out boldly when the gospel is at stake. I'm afraid afraid in today's world that that many Christians and churches are talking about pretty much everything other than the gospel. Having grown up as a pastor's kid and hearing the narrative of church life through the house and home of a pastor, I can tell you there were many times that dad would come home and the conversations that he was dealing with weren't about, hey pastor, how can I love Jesus better? Hey pastor, how can I share the gospel in my workplace? Hey pastor, I'm praying and I'm burdened for this man or this woman or this person in my family or my niece or my cousin. So often the conversations that came home that I heard about had very little to do with an urgency to get the gospel to lost and dying people. And here's what I've learned through the years. Having served in a church plant, in a small church, in a mid-sized church, in a 2,500 member church, and now as lead pastor at North Roanoke Baptist Church, I've discovered something, and it's very important. There is a direct correlation between the conversations that are happening in the church and the impact the church is having in the world. There is a direct correlation between the conversations that are happening in a church and the impact the church is having in the world. We want to be a church that makes a kingdom difference. When you get a phone call or an email or a text that isn't about the main thing, then redirect them to the main thing. Do we want to be a church that makes a difference for King Jesus in our season, in our day, in our time? Then we need to be like Esther. Willing to embrace whatever inconvenience necessary for the glory of Christ. And willing to speak the truth of the gospel. Because that is the mission that we've been given. Churches that are talking about doing whatever it takes to reach the lost. Guess what they're doing? They're reaching lost people. Churches that are talking about how to make disciples. What a disciple is and does and believes. And where they go and when they speak. 
They are making true disciples. At North Roanoke, I pray that we, like Esther, will be compelled to appeal for the lives of those who are faced with a decree of death. That we would intercede for the lost, for our missionaries, for our family and friends and colleagues. That Jesus and those He died to save would be what is filling our mind and our hearts and our mouths. And that Jesus would be pleased with our conversations. And that we would be willing to withstand whatever inconvenience necessary for God to work in us and through us to proclaim the gospel as far and wide as possible. My prayer, North Roanoke, is that God would find us at 6402 Peters Creek Road, willing to stand in the gap for those who don't yet know Him by talking about what really matters and otherwise getting over ourselves for the glory of God. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy. This wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The next thing we see, the next truth we see in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, is we must confront the enemies of God with wisdom and clarity. In verse 5, the king wants to know who in the world got an edict to kill the queen and her people. You know who the answer is? The king. I mean, ultimately, it was the king's fault. Who is this knucklehead who did this? Um, hmm. What am I going to say to that one, king? Well, I'll tell you about what Haman did. So the denseness of the king, the forgetfulness of the king, gives Esther an opportunity to call out the mastermind behind the plan and help the king see Haman in a new light. Not only as her enemy, but as his enemy as well. So the king, in verse 5, asks literally, Where is the man whose heart has filled him to do such a thing? And in verse 6, Esther is ready with her answer. Now remember something as we read verse 6. Esther doesn't know what happened in chapter 6. She's she's unaware. So all the the tables turning in chapter 6, she has no clue. So the boldness that she has to call out the enemy of the people of God to his face, the the king's right-hand man, it it is amazing. All she knows is she's got one shot and she takes it. And she says, it's this man, this evil man, this foe, this enemy, that guy right there, Haman. And, And in her mind, she's thinking, the best case scenario is the king has a dilemma on his hands. Because he has supported this man and propped this man up and entrusted this man with everything. That's the best case scenario. He's got a dilemma to figure out. The worst case scenario is he just puts the queen away just like he put away Vashti in chapter 1. But when she has her opportunity, regardless of the risks or the consequences, she goes for it. She front loads the words foe and enemy and wicked and at the end delivers Haman's name. The man whose heart is filled with evil scheming against the queen is seated right before the king at the banquet. And in that moment, Haman is terrified. He's literally gripped by a fear in the presence of a sudden terror. Haman's wickedness comes to light and he trembles. It took great courage 
for Esther to confront her oppressor in front of the king who had entrusted him with everything, but she did it. And did you know, church, it also takes courage on our part to confront sin? It's not easy to confront sin, is it? I mean, you didn't wake up this morning and be like, man, I'm excited to go confront some sin. Woo! It's not easy, but it's what we're called to. We're called to confront sin in our own lives. We're called to confront sin in the church. We're called to confront sin in the world. It is the work to which God has called us. And it is impossible to proclaim the gospel without mentioning sin and its consequences. Oh, there's a lot of churches that have tried and they're dying. Oh, Jesus was a nice guy, and if you think Jesus' thoughts, then you'll be nice too, and everything will be fine. No, Jesus had to die for your sin. It is impossible to be a church that glorifies Jesus and sweep giant sins under the rug. It is impossible to stand for truth and justice in the world and ignore the reality of sin. But confrontation is not fun, is it? I mean, there's probably like three weirdos in here that really like confrontation, but for the most of us, it's not an exciting thing. I, I hate confrontation. I absolutely hate it. Which, you might be saying, well then why are you a pastor? That's a great question. It's not fun. But it kind of comes with the job. But, but the reality is confrontation is difficult for most of us. So what do we do? Let's be honest with ourselves this, this morning. Rather, often, what we do is rather than confront sin in our lives and in our churches, and as we share the gospel with the lost, we instead allow our consciences to be deadened to the reality of the gross, heinous, vile wickedness of sin. We watch programs celebrating sinful lifestyles, and then we wonder why we're struggling to accept God's word as truth about those lifestyles. We see someone post something on Facebook or Twitter that clearly displeases God and is clearly contrary to why Jesus had to come and die in the first place, and then we give them a like or love on social media when the thing that they're posting is a reason that Jesus had to die. Church, we've become complacent when it comes to confronting sin. And we've become complacent first because we don't want to call it out in our own lives. So what do we say? Well, he's a sinner and I'm a sinner and we're all sinners, so we'll just live right there in the land of we're all sinners and we'll accept it and it's okay. Is that what Jesus told us to do? Do you remember the story of the log and the speck in the eye? What did he say? Did he say just leave that log in your eye? No, he said, remove the log in your eye so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He doesn't say, don't judge, end of sentence. He says, don't judge the world, but in the church, we should be judging one another so that we can see clearly to get the sins out of our lives and look more like Jesus. It's why Peter says, be holy as God is holy. But we've become complacent when it comes to confronting sin, because we don't want to call ourselves out 
And then what do we do next? We create our own version of Jesus, a Jesus that the Bible would not recognize. We create a nice Jesus who would never offend anybody, who would never tell us that we're sinners headed for for hell and who need a Savior. And we invent this Jesus who doesn't exist. And then we talk to other people in the workplace, the marketplace about Jesus. Oh, I know Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But their Jesus isn't the Jesus of the Bible. And if it isn't the Jesus of the Bible who had to die for their sin and confront them with the reality of their sin, then they're still going to to die and spend eternity in hell. We've got to confront sin. And the, re- the last reason we become complacent when it comes to confronting sin is we lack courage. We don't have courage like Esther. Courage for confronting sin comes when we are focused on getting Messiah Jesus to the world. And you can't get Messiah Jesus to the world who came to be the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world without mentioning that sin stands in the way. It takes courage, church, to confront our friends and neighbors with the truth that they are their own worst enemies, to tell them that it is their selfish pride and sin and rebellion that stands between them and a holy God. But there are people that God has positioned you to know and to speak this truth to that only you can tell them. And if you don't tell them, they will end up just like Haman. So why not confront the people in your lives with the wickedness of their lives so that they can finally see the worthiness of the Savior who came to rid them of their sin and forgive them and cleanse them from all unrighteousness that they might have peace with God. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 10 as we see what happens to Haman. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, moreover the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. What can we learn from verses 7 through 10? I, I want you to get this truth out of this text. Church, we must live now so that when what is hidden is revealed, we will live and not die. We must live now so that when what is hidden is revealed, we will live and not perish. These verses remind us that the wicked often prosper in this world, but they do not win. 24 hours earlier, Haman was flying high. Now his corpse is hanging on the gallows he constructed for his own pride. Haman is giving us a picture of how sin works. For years, it may seem that sin has no consequences. And then, in an instant, the consequences of sin come crashing down on the sinner. In this case, Haman is executed by a king who had to take a walk. Why in the world did Ahasuerus have to walk into the garden? Was he just that angry and he had to count to ten? I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Ahasuerus has a dilemma. 
How do I punish a man for issuing a decree that I authorized? How am I going to get around this one? So he, he takes a walk. Duguid says this, How could he now, without losing face, punish Haman for promulgating a decree that he had approved personally? That was his tricky dilemma. And in verse 7, as the, the king leaves to figure out what he's going to do, what does Haman do? He remains and begs for his life. This man, who had never shown mercy, now wants mercy. Now that his life is on the line, suddenly the lives of others matter to him. As his wife predicted at the end of chapter 6, he now falls before Esther, the seed of the Jews. And now, as Haman falls before Esther, we might be thinking, well, is Haman suddenly repentant? And the answer is no. You say, well, how do you know that? Let me ask you a question. If the king had still been in the room, and Esther had just said, this guy wants to kill me, would he have gotten anywhere close to Esther? Of course not. But now that the king has left the room, he goes to Esther, and he's like, I want my life. But repentance is more than remorse. Repentance is more than regret. It is more than a desire to escape the consequences of sin. Repentance is renouncing what you have done. It's not just admitting that you're a sinner. It's running away from sin and self-worship to God. Dowden writes this, Repenting from sin means doing all you can in the Lord's power not to return to it. Are you repentant this morning? Are you running away from your sin and to Jesus? Or are you sort of coddling your sin and soothing your conscience, believing, well, my sin's okay because I prayed a prayer or I walked an aisle or I got dunked when I was 7 or 10 or 13, but I'm not really living for God. I'm really accepting idolatry in my life. I'm not fighting against it. That's not repentance. Repentance is I was running towards self. I was running towards sin. I was running towards things that were displeasing to God, and I renounced that, and Oh, it's chasing me down. I want to keep looking to Jesus. I want to be in accountability with other believers. I want to keep running towards Christ and living for His glory. And those things that want to hold me back or cause me to turn back around, I want to put them out of my life because I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus. Are you repentant? Haman has regrets, but he does not run after the king in repentance. Instead, he falls on Esther's couch, and that gives the king the opportunity that he needed to accuse Haman of assaulting his wife and avoid the issue of the decree altogether. The, the king has found a way to take care of his anger without implicating himself. At the end of verse 8, as the king states the charge against Haman, the attendants cover his face, and in verse 9, the eunuch mentions Haman's gallows, which had been intended for Mordecai, whose word had saved the king, and instead the king gives the word to hang Haman. In verse 10, Haman meets his end, and the king's anger is abated, and the right-hand man of the king is dead. He doesn't get a hero's funeral, but a swift death on his own gallows. The end of Haman is a picture of the end of all who chase after their own glory. What they build for their own glory ultimately leads to their own downfall. Haman, who had just told everyone that he had everything, money, sons, promotions, and prestigious invitations to the queen's parties, ends up with nothing because he was living for the wrong king by the wrong values of the wrong kingdom. Haman shows us the end of those who spend their lives living for this world in a moment 
they will face the consequences. Which raises a question for us, church. Which king are we serving? Which kingdom are we pursuing? When Jesus returns, he's not going to have any need to take a walk to figure out how to justify his anger against the wicked. He's going to know. In fact, Revelation tells us that he will walk through the grapes of wrath. That his righteous white robes will be stained with the blood of the wicked. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is righteous and holy. He is always right and He always wins. And it will be entirely right and just for King Jesus to punish sinners forever. In the day that He returns, the promise of Ecclesiastes 12, 14 will be fulfilled. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. And this morning you might be saying, well, I am not serving that king and that terrifies me. Good. I have good news. You can trust him today. This king left heaven not to condemn you, but to save you. Like King Ahasuerus, Unlike King Ahasuerus, nobody had to prepare two feasts for Jesus to know that you were a wicked sinner deserving of death. He already knew that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and He left heaven to take your place on the cross, to die for your sin, to bear God's wrath so that you can have peace with God, so that when He comes again, He won't trample over you and have your blood splattering all over His righteous robes, but instead, when His work of judgment is done, you will stand with Him and you will feast at His table and you will rejoice because His blood was already spilt so that yours won't have to be. So how should we respond to chapter 7? When we look at the life of Esther, we see that God is calling us to courageously give our lives over to sharing the gospel and bearing with any inconvenience necessary in order to magnify Jesus. We see that we need to confront sin in our own lives, in our church, and by calling sinners to repentance as we proclaim the gospel. And finally, we need to make sure, church, that we are not those who are concealing our sin because Jesus came to cancel it for us. We must remember, as Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Have you confessed your sins? Have you run away from your sinful tendency to worship yourself and to instead make much of Jesus Christ the King. If not, I want to urge you today to confess and forsake your sin. Run to Christ and obtain great mercy. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. That our King is not clueless. Our King is not asleep at the wheel. Our King is righteous and just and holy and omniscient and omnipotent. And though He is very God of God, He came down on a rescue mission so that we could have salvation. So that our sins could be forgiven. That we could be given courage to pursue the purposes of God in this world. And Lord, we pray that You would find us to be united with Christ, courageously sharing the gospel, confronting sin in our own lives 
and in the proclamation of the gospel around the world, and that you would magnify Christ our King as a result. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.